Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Graham Botwright. Graham is the CEO of the Gap Partnership, the world's leading negotiation consultancy. Uh, Graham, warm welcome to you and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Scott. and Thanks very much for having me on board. It's great to be here. Likewise, pleasure having you with us. Uh, certainly is a warm day for it as well. Um, now, something I wanted to talk about on the podcast today, which we perhaps haven't covered in so much depth before, Graham, is business negotiation. And of course, at the Gap Partnership, that's something that, of course, you specialise in. When it comes to sort of doing negotiation within business, it's part and parcel of how a business works, isn't it? So having a strong negotiation culture is absolutely vital. But just to clarify, how is negotiation important to a wider business strategy first and foremost, just for those younger entrepreneurs that may be tuning into this? Absolutely. No, you're you're exactly right. uh, Negotiation is a fundamental business skill. um, And I think most leaders uh, in most organizations recognize the importance that negotiation plays in them achieving their their, their objectives, typically their financial objectives and so on. I think one of the areas that's perhaps less um, uh, often understood is the fact that negotiation actually starts a lot sooner in the um, uh, commercial processes than perhaps is given credit. Many people think that negotiation is the bit that happens at the end where we cut the deal, um, whereas at the Gap Partnership, we very firmly um, take the perspective with our clients that in order for your strategy to come to life, your business strategy, and to make it happen, you've got to execute on that strategy. And um, that execution very often revolves around the negotiation element. And we help our clients put negotiation culture through their whole organization to make sure that that business strategy gets implemented effectively and delivers on its objectives. And why do you think that negotiation has been seen rather paradoxically as that sort of peripheral activity at the end? Is it because that maybe some business leaders may feel it's sort of combative or argumentative when sort of dealing with others? I think that's true. I think a lot of people take, you have a lot of people that see it very much as this brinkmanship uh, piece, which is all about getting the best possible price uh, at, at the end of the deal. Um, some people, though, I mean, and of course, the very common cliche these days is actually negotiations all about win-win, and they see it all about being able to, to, to gain value for both sides. And uh, I, I think both perspectives are true, but uh, but neither are true in, uniquely. And uh, the, the true skilled negotiator is able to flex their style. And negotiation agility is something that we see as a true competence uh, that's been particularly important, I think, over the last 18 months where we've seen organizations having to adapt their style of negotiation um, and, and those that are winning truly being able to sometimes take the tougher stance where they need to and, uh, uh, and not just simply giving away value where unnecessarily, but also to be able to work with other parties to be able to create value for both sides uh, uh, and think about the long term much more than just simply a short term deal. 
And just again, for some of the younger viewers tuning in that may be looking to start out in business or have recently started one, what are some of those sort of negative consequences of maybe not having that robust negotiating culture in place in your view? I think the, 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 the biggest issue is you know, the, the failure to plan. And uh, uh, our, our experience and our research shows that 58% of organizations um, don't plan effectively for negotiations. Uh, and of course, if they don't do that, then very often they miss many of the uh, uh, opportunities that are there for them. One of the key things about negotiation and about business generally is truly understanding the balance of power. Uh, between yourself and the other parties that uh, uh, you're negotiating with. And in order to truly understand that balance of power, uh, there's got to be some some very clear understanding of uh, what all the alternatives are, uh, but also what all the opportunities are for both parties. And so one of the things is is that um, I think another issue that, uh, that, that very often is faced through lack of planning is uh, not understanding all of the potential negotiables that could be um, could be discussed and, and worked on. And I think that's mm. becoming more and more topical as negotiations become more complex. So traditionally, if you if you focus entirely on price, you may miss a lot of value elsewhere. We've recently been working with a, a large chocolate manufacturer. Uh, with their procurement team in, in buying cocoa, and, and they spend uh, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, a, a year on, on buying cocoa. And where traditionally that's been a commodity based on price, now, of course, the sustainability of cocoa becomes much more important to their customers and therefore much more important in the big scheme of things. And so good value for them is understanding how do they negotiate that sustainability against price um, and price becomes almost second fiddle. Um, so uh, mm. you sometimes, if you don't do the planning, you don't understand what is the true value and cost uh, to, to both organisations. Absolutely. And we've established already, of course, that the Gap Partnership is very much geared toward helping organisations implement their strategies through effective negotiation. So without sort of giving too much away, of course, what are some of the most basic tips that you would maybe give to business leaders on sort of having that effective negotiation strategy? Um, I think the, the first one is probably the importance of being anticipative uh, in, uh, in what you do. Um, very often organizations that we see that, that, that spend a lot of time really thinking through what is going to happen further down the line of this negotiation and actually almost role-playing it in advance um, get a real advantage. So, uh, so, so the whole piece around anticipating what's going to happen, and it's remarkable just how predictable uh, many of these uh, these negotiations are. Um, I think accurately prioritizing the issues um, that, that are important to your business and truly understanding your objectives, and and that is about getting full alignment across your organisation. In my experience, most negotiation problems are self-generated. Uh, they're not, not generated by the other party. I think very often we go into negotiation feeling scared of the, the negotiation itself. But actually, if we get our own house in order, that can really help. And I've, I've talked about the importance of preparation, but also alignment internally and making sure that, uh, that, that, that all of our senior stakeholders really understand what we're doing and are, are in alignment behind that. I think that the, the, the final thing that's, uh, that's an obvious one that, uh, that organizations need to focus on is their internal uh, capability uh, at being able to execute and making sure that their people that are involved in the negotiations have the skills 
um, and the character to, to be able to conduct those negotiations effectively. Um, uh, so th- those are some of the, the most obvious tips I would give. Mm. And what sort of quality should a skilled negotiator actually have? Um, well, there are, there, are, there are many aspects to that. One I've sort of alluded to already is the ability to, to be agile in your, in, your, in your style and be able to flex. So sometimes to be able to, to, to deal with the real uh, blood and guts end of negotiation, the cut and thrust of, uh, of, of tough deals. The other piece is having the relationship and empathy to, to, to be able to build trust um, with the partner and being able to flex between those two. Um, and, and, and move your ability. Um, so there's quite a lot there, which is around holding your nerve and uh, 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 not being affected emotionally by the pressure that we all feel when we get into a negotiation. By nature, negotiation will always have some kind of pressure to it um, because you and the other party will have differing, if not opposite goals. And therefore, how do you separate your emotions from the pressure of that mm. and not react to it? Um, but keep calm under pressure, separate your emotions from your behaviors um, and uh, uh, and really focus on the outcome that you need objectively. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, isn't it? It's maintaining a cool head within that situation and being able to make objective decisions, not ones that are sort of driven by sort of your personal investment within that negotiation, I suppose. Absolutely true. Yeah, I think that's right. And like I said, we talked about some of the sort of main causes of negotiation trouble and business strategy failure as well, such as that inadequate planning and that internal misalignment and maybe also that failure to understand the balance of power as well. But I think it also emphasizes this uh, matter, the importance of communication within a business when it comes to strategy as well. And I think we've also learned from that during the COVID-19 situation, haven't we, that keeping the communication channels open is absolutely critical. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, uh, and and interestingly, that's the communication channels internally as well as the communication channels externally. And uh, some, some of the traits that, that I see being most important to, to, to your negotiation or commercial success as you implement the strategy um, are, are around leadership optimism and, uh, and, and, and remaining calm under pressure. And uh, I, I think we've seen some phenomenal examples in some of our, our successful businesses um, in the UK uh, around how leaders have managed to be um, highly objective in some very stressful situations. And the optimism that we've seen, I think, has really held. And we can see that coming through in the economy being performing so strongly, even given the situation we've had, which uh, I think, as you rightly say, is a lot to do with communication, optimism, um, and, and, and how they've, they've handled that situation. Mm. And just something that's quite relevant in this period of time as well. Say, for example, we have sort of negotiations in a boardroom in person compared to negotiations in like a virtual call, for example. Does it require sort of a different set of almost negotiating skills in each different scenario for you? It's, it's an interesting question that's, uh, that's asked obviously a huge amount over the last 18 months. We um, uh, we found that, I mean, just, just the core skills are probably very similar, the core traits that underpin uh, everything is very similar, but what does change is the is the the way in which you're able to conduct those negotiations. So typically, when you're face to face, 
the whole communication piece is you have a whole set of uh, non-verbal communication that really mm. helps you understand uh, just how the deal is going and how the relationship is playing out. Once you're online, that changes quite significantly. Um, and, uh, and and much more of it is around the, the tone of voice. In fact, what we're finding is so many more negotiations are moving now to simply email or even instant messaging um, negotiations. Um, and that can feel a lot more informal, but of course the consequences are just as, as serious as they were when they were face-to-face negotiations. And so um, uh, one of the pieces of advice we give our clients is to try as best possible to get as much personal connection in those negotiations that will help to keep that relationship alive and help to to keep away from the highly conflictual types of negotiation and also to provide a lot more information through uh, full communication, including nonverbal. Mm, absolutely. And um, I suppose as we're sort of entering this period of economic unlocking, not just in the UK, but also sort of further afield now with restrictions tentatively being lifted elsewhere, more businesses are going to start, of course, negotiating with each other again. And there'll be therefore a need for robust negotiation between all of these industry operators. So with that in mind, Graham, just before we do wrap things up, um, what are some of your priorities at the Gap Partnership going to be over the next year as we see some of these economies reopening again? Um, well, so we, we, we are a global business and um, we, uh, we, we have um, uh, offices in all continents of the world. And, uh, and therefore, for us, it's uh, the ability to be able to get back and, um, and, and, and travel between those offices that are really important for us. Mm. It's communication for us internally. Um, our, our people are all working virtually at the moment. And of course, we're very much a, a face-to-face business traditionally. We've we've made the shift now to, to virtual operating and we're trying to move as many of our services as we can uh, digitally and virtually where possible if that works for our clients. So it's making sure that we've got that working and therefore our whole business has become much more technologically uh, sophisticated and needs to do more so. So that's a, a key priority. Um, also, for us, we're we're benefiting now from the the growth in the, the global economy, and uh, and therefore recruitment and finding high quality people is as always in, uh, the, the hardest and most important thing for us. Um, we're in a very fortunate position right now where it's uh, that the challenge that we're facing as an organisation is the capacity to deliver um, what our clients want from us rather than uh, uh, rather than trying to win more business. So uh, mm. that's a huge challenge being a people business. It is, absolutely. And as you said, um, with with regards to the first point, I think it is very clear now that digital sort of hybrid working that's going to be part and parcel of the way that the world does business as a result of COVID, isn't it? Because that sort of digital transformation has accelerated so much. Absolutely true. And of course, the the businesses where technology hasn't been the core competence in the past, we've we've got to learn quickly. Exactly right. And we do wish you all the luck in the world with that sort of transition, Graham. I think it'll be a very fascinating time, not just for yourselves, but also many other businesses across the globe as well. And I think as we start to understand more about sort of how that's transpiring and how that sort of transition is going, I'd actually love perhaps to welcome you back onto the show in the next sort of seven or eight months and just catch up on how things are getting on in that respect, because I really enjoyed having you with us today. It's been a really enlightening discussion. That's great, Scott. I'd love to uh, come back and join you then. So thanks ever so much for the opportunity and look forward to speaking in due course. Uh, Likewise, Graham. And lastly, just before we wrap up, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're not quite out of this yet, but confident that we're entering better days, hopefully. Many thanks, Scott.
It was a pleasure welcoming Graham Botwright, CEO of the Gap Partnership, onto today's programme to talk all things negotiation. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, who's going to be sharing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID-19 situation, as well as sharing some of his hopes for this period of economic recovery that we're hopefully venturing into. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react. uh, And Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state? Or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. He has the experience. He has the professionalism. He has the forensic uh, mindset. 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm-hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.